Hey, it's Dollars to Donuts with Steve Portugal. Hi, and welcome to Dollars to Donuts, the podcast where we talk with the people who lead user research in their organization. I'm Steve Portugal. If you are curious about developing your team's user research superpowers, or if you want a partner in discovering and acting on new insights, get in touch at portugal.com. You can also buy my book, Interviewing Users, from Rosenfeld Media and Amazon. Carol Rossi is the Senior Director of UX Research at Edmunds.com. She studied and taught yoga and sees the overlap between yoga and user research as being the emphasis on observation. A long-standing people watcher, she's trying these days to set her mobile phone aside so she can pay attention to what's going on around her. Her calling is really to improve the world by making it easier and more fun to use technology. Well, Carol, welcome to Dollars to Donuts. Thanks. Thanks for including me. So maybe I'll ask you the, the sort of the first question, which is always my favorite first question, just to go broad and uh, you know, have you tell us about where you work and what you do. Sure. I work at admins.com. And I manage our user experience research team. And we focus mostly on qualitative research. And we work really closely with the quant researchers and uh, marketing, analytics, other people in the organization that do research. And is analytics different than quantitative research? Yeah, I guess I'm making a distinction between like sheer like site analytics and uh, quant research, which includes large-scale surveys, like we have 4C running on the site, which is you know like a voice of the customer tool, uh, and other surveys that we send out to our customers. And and that that's a separate part of the that's a separate team from the analytics team. Yeah, that team is run by my colleague Michelle Schatz, who is we're kind of like joined at the hip. <laughs> we sit next to each other. We work together all the time, um, and we both report to the VP of user experience, Jackie Remus, and the analytics team is in a, a separate area of the company. I mean, we work really closely together, but they don't organizationally report up the same way we do. Okay, that makes sense. And what's what's your history with admins.com? Oh, uh, my gosh. I've been here about four and a half years, and I was brought in actually to established some research function here that didn't exist in any formal way before that. There had been people, kind of maybe more junior researchers here, maybe one or two at a time, and they would do usability studies or a survey occasionally, but um, there hadn't been any formal kind of attention to collecting and understanding customer needs and kind of keeping a pulse on the experience on the site and measuring it on a regular basis. Do you remember what those conversations were like when you were trying to get the lay of the land and, and talk to them about what you would do in that role? Yeah. I mean, it was it was actually really awesome because I had a chance, the first month that I was here, I literally spent every day just conducting stakeholder interviews and would sit down for like an hour with, you know, I sat down with like 25 people at the company that are really some of them, a lot of them are still here and still the people that I work with every day um, in product, in design, in marketing, customer service, you know, all these different areas. 
and to understand what they needed. You know, what do you need to know about our customers? What do you know now? What's helpful? All those things. And and what I heard resoundingly was we don't really know very much. And so from there, it was almost just obvious that we needed to kind of start with, you know, a com- combination of like big scale, you know, personas, brand perception research, uh, and all the way down to like regular usability studies and interviews with customers. And so, yeah, I just laid out like this 18 month roadmap to get us started. And that happened to correspond with the company had just decided to move in a direction of design thinking and had hired some people to come in and train like a lot of the company on really basic design thinking skills. So that was happening. And then I realized, okay, we the first thing I think we need to do is create personas because it's just, I think it's a really good tool for just giving people a model and kind of the lay of the land and at least have some idea what broad segments exist. And because I think it's really important to get people involved in, in like the process in order to get their buy-in, you know, I sat down with with my boss and the um, VP of product and said, I think we need to just take people on the road and get them out interviewing customers. And then, so we had like, you know, 35 people <laughs> running around the country interviewing all these people, came back into the room and uh, did our clustering and kind of proudly together presented the first set of personas that gave everybody a way to at least start thinking about customers in terms of maybe the things that are important to them instead of the things that might be, we might think are important to them. I've neglected to ask you uh, at this point what um, what kind of business Edmunds.com is. Oh, we are a third-party auto website. Traditionally, Edmunds, the company is almost 50 years old and it's been a publisher First, we published a book with car prices, and then, you know, we had the first third-party auto website in, I'm going to say, 1995. We were really focused as a company on being experts, and we still have this amazing editorial team of, you know, professional writers and people that, like, keep cars for a long time and, you know, review them, like, over, you know, months and a year and years and so we can really write intelligently about what it's like to own the car. Um, but anyway, it was a traditionally a publisher, and so there was this very strong kind of we are the experts mindset. And I think that was what started to shift in like 2009-ish, 2010, when I was brought in to think more about what customers need and how we can kind of give them more of what they need instead of thinking that maybe we understand that already. So in that, uh, that, I guess it's the Personas project where you had 35 people uh, out and about doing, doing research, were you looking at car buyers? Yeah, because we didn't know exactly where we wanted to target. So we literally did a panel recruit in various cities and got people who either said they were in market to buy a car or had recently bought a car. And I can't remember, you know, the exact parameters, but... It was probably something like, you know, had bought a car within six months and intended to buy one within three or something like that. 
So we got people that were pretty close to the actual purchase and collected their stories. And is that's that's the focus for much of the research that you're doing is people who are having some relationship with a purchase. Yeah. Okay. It's become, you know, as obviously as we've learned more over the last few years, it's become more and more specific and tailored and certain, you know, focus on certain types of buyers and and all that. And, you know, as we've matured our understanding of our customers, like that original set of personas has been replaced. So, you know, we have a much more sophisticated understanding of shoppers and who's on Edmunds. And of course, we're always learning, but we're in much better shape to target, you know, just to target better. But it's still generally, we're still pretty focused around people actually making a purchase. And part of that is that the business of the company has shifted in the last couple of years, and we're much more focused on connecting car shoppers with dealers now than we were, you know, four years ago. And are you facing or have you overcome or dealt with any challenges around that's a really specific use case, I guess, or a situation that you're looking to talk to people in. And have you found ways to, to, to deal with that? Yeah, it is very specific. You know, I think we've, we've learned a few things and, and we've kind of evolved our thinking in terms of how we can find the best people. One thing for sure we've done is that towards the end of last year, Michelle, who's my research partner who does the quant stuff, and some people from the analytics team did a really fabulous analysis of our site users to understand who gives us the most benefit. So now we're kind of focusing on them and we're actually recruiting people that have used admins for whom we have contact info um, as our kind of primary market. So that's kind of more right now. Our focus has been a bit on them. We've also been, we've realized that in fact, I just had this conversation with somebody last week. We can't really expect to have shoppers be very, like, we can't go out and say, do you intend to buy a car within a month? And they'll say, yeah, because they may intend to, but then something changes, you know, um, somebody loses a job or the parent gets sick and they have to take time away to do that or whatever. So there are these things that prevent that from happening and or, for example, we ran a study last quarter and this guy said he intended to buy within a couple of months. He was looking at a couple of cars and went out for a test drive and ended up buying a car. So it's it's it can be challenging to try and pinpoint like the exact moment of purchase, but we've got some ways to either kind of be realistic about what we can get or kind of target it, you know, people that are on our site because we know a little bit more about their potential behavior. And that's, that sounds like it's the product of, you know, years of working on this and refining it. Yes, <laughs> it is. I guess that's it's how good. you learn it, learn most things. Is yeah. Trial and error. Yeah. You know, often, uh, the kind of qualitative research that, that we all do gets split into generative versus evaluative. And I don't know if that's a, the right framework for you, but I wonder sort of how you, how do you characterize the kinds of ways that the research you're doing is supporting other parts of the organization? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is a way that we might characterize it. We've, you know, we've tried to be very responsive to the needs of the organization. And 
we've been asked to kind of be in, on both sides of that. You know, for example, a year ago, this time we were asked to do kind of pretty regular usability benchmarking and focus on the more evaluative piece. At this point in the last like six months, we've been working really hard to get sort of ahead of the product team and use sort of an integrated research approach. So all of us are starting to come together in a more formal way, the the marketing team that's doing research, the analytics team, you know, Quant and Qual on our team, customer service, because they're getting a lot of feedback and try to drive product changes and drive new business initiatives through research by answering some very specific questions. So it's actually a really exciting moment because we're getting more and more ahead of ahead of the product team. It's pretty cool. Can you point to anything as as influencing that shift? You know, I think there was executive recognition that we could be doing things maybe a little bit differently in a way that could help us get ahead, you know, ahead of the competition. I'm not sure if there's a specific root cause. So when you describe kind of the the, the shift in, I don't know, is it, it's kind of where the, where the idea comes from, what, what the product opportunities are, I think is how I understand, you know, this, this evolution. Is there a risk of something like that being a political issue? And by that, I mean, that is something being taken away from someone in favor of this this more integrated process. Being you mean being taken away from somebody else who was potentially driving that? Yeah, I mean it's you know from the outside I have just sort of the meanest smallest uh, narrative in my head that you know product people who reported to so and so used to make decisions about things and now yeah. they would dictate what was going to get made, but now they've sort of. They've lost that power. And again, it's a very negative characterization. But you know, I wonder, how does that manifest itself inside, inside your teams? Yeah, I think I neglected to say that as part of this um, integrated research team, we have product people and designers involved. So in the past two quarters, we've spent one quarter each doing an ethnography project. We're in the middle of one right now where you know I'm paired with a product person or two and designer and we're together running the whole deal. So we take this business question that's been given to us. We figure out some of the logistics. I mean, my team or, or some other people helping will kind of work through the recruiting and that kind of business. But um, the planning of the study, um, the executing. So everybody goes into the field, everybody's involved in, understanding what the objectives are and laying those out. Everybody's involved in regular reports to the executive board that check in on this process as we're going along. Everybody's involved in running the study, so everybody goes into the field. Usually we have, like, you know, me or another researcher leading it, but there's always, like, one of the product people or designers is there as the co-researcher. We all get together and do the whole affinity diagramming and understanding what we've learned, extracting the trends and insights. And then we, the other thing that we've added now is that we all work through an ideation to come up with some product concepts directly resulting from those insights. So everybody's kind of, you know, 
going through the process together. So at the end, everybody feels ownership of it. And I mean, you know, like I was saying, when we did the first set of personas, we had some of these same people actually out in the field. And we've always gone into the field with a partner from product design, other, you know, areas of the company, marketing, fed, whatever. But this time we're saying, no, the partnership starts at the beginning and it goes all the way through um, instead of maybe involved in the planning or maybe running the study or, you know, one or two phases along the way. That's a much happier narrative than the dramatic one that I was constructing. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's a pretty happy narrative so far. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. I, I never, I mean, I just don't see the point in going out, you know, especially for field research and even when we do on-site usability testing, you know, everybody's in the room. You know, we have a researcher in the room with the participant and also, again, one of these, you know, co-researchers who's from product or design or whatever. But we've got all these other people in the observation room watching and we're kind of building the, you know, affinity diagram during the study. So by the end of a day or two, everybody's together, everybody's on board. I mean, it sounds more kumbaya than it, you know, there, there, there's it, let me put it this way. It works pretty well because this is a very collaborative environment, like seriously collaborative and fairly non-competitive in a really good way that Mm. I, you know, I haven't seen at every company I've worked in. That's for sure. It just makes me think how far the field has come. And I don't just mean the research field, but, but all the fields, because I think the, the dominant, I think about you know, more than a decade ago, that sort of the dominant narrative was, uh, and maybe this is still true for a lot of places, but uh, I used to hear a lot about, well, how do we get the engineers to come to the usability test? How do we get other people interested in what the research is doing? Um, But I feel like, you know, you know, as you're describing, and it's certainly consistent with what I see out there talking to people and working with people is that there is a real interest and a real hunger for uh, across the disciplines for learning, for understanding what's going on with people so that so that we can all do a better job together. Yeah. So I'm doing a little kumbaya, but I mean, it, it just seemed, <laughs> it, I think maybe it's one of the, one of the consequences of just, you know, my age is that I remember sort of some of the bad old days and I don't always see that, you know, the world has moved on and that a lot of those problems we dug our heels in kind of at what felt like the early days um, just don't, aren't there. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not trivial to do what you guys have done and establish that kind of collaborative culture and then put a program in place. But it seems like the conditions are there in workplaces in general where that can actually happen. And there was a time when, you know, you would be, you know, winning an Academy Award for what you just said. It was so, uh, in a new category that I just created, um, (laughs) I don't know. I mean, you have a, you have, uh, I think you and I have similar times in the profession. Do you, do you see the that we're in another era from from when we all started? Oh my God, yes. I mean, it's funny because I remember one. I worked for one company, which shall remain nameless, years ago, and that was like when we were still called human interface people or human factors or whatever, and um, we couldn't even get into the field. I mean, it was like a battle getting into the field, and it was an enterprise product. So it wasn't like, you know, you could go to a panel company and get participants. I mean, we needed these business people and it was really hard to get out. But the other thing that's funny, I've been reflecting on this lately. I think I had a really 
my career began in probably a really odd way because I my first job in college, I was a senior in college. I wasn't even in graduate school yet. And I worked for Honeywell and we were, I mean, it's, <laughs> it sounds so ancient, but we were making training simulators for like F-16s or something. And the reason I'm telling the story is that, you know, they had all these interns, me and like six others who were undergraduates or graduate students in like psychology. And we were working with a subject matter expert from the Air Force and a programmer from Honeywell. And there was somebody else. There were like four people on these teams. And we we each had like a section of the airplane that we were responsible for. And we worked together. All of us sat in a room like these Air Force guys would come from, I don't know, Arizona or something for like six weeks at a time. And we'd work on this thing. And then they'd go away and we'd develop something and then they'd come back. And I just thought that was normal. <laughs> you know, it's like when you're a little kid and your family is a certain way and you think that's normal. And then you go off and you go to other people's houses and you realize that like other houses operate differently. And that my career started with this like totally collaborative team thing happening. So I thought that was normal. And then I got other jobs where that wasn't the case. And it wasn't until, you know, yeah, like the internet, like 15 years ago or whatever, you know, so a few years later that collaboration became like the way to just the way to do things. So yes, I'm seeing exactly what you're seeing and maybe more. Yeah. I wonder if this was a podcast about some other part of a business operation like HR or accounting or something. I wonder, I mean, I wonder if what we're describing is just a shift in the Western workforce and, and kind of uh, professional cultures, or if it's you know specific to our field, which is still very young. You know, it's hard for me to answer that because Edmonds is this like freakishly <laughs> collaborative place. I mean, you've been here. We have this, for example, we have this workplace experience team that like I've never seen anywhere with these really awesome people that like they can just do any, they can make anything happen. In fact, one of them has become our chief recruiter. She's like amazing. She gets these amazing participants just by talking to the, on the phone to these people. So yeah, I'm probably in like an extreme kind of environment for that kind of thing. One of my favorite stories about, you know, meeting people at Edmonds was uh, someone from the workplace experience team uh, had someone who was traveling, I think, outside of the uh, your area, Los Angeles, to go to a conference. It wasn't like travel agency stuff, like here's your hotel, but they were really uh, helping them with a new life experience, which was to go on a business trip. And that, I thought that was just a really, it was an interesting sign of the times. And, uh, you know, I had sort of the, I felt my age. I'm like, wow, no one helped me do that kind of stuff. <laughs> but how great, how how great that, uh, you know, that there's just so much thoughtfulness put into into that. And so, I mean, to me, that's a, I took that away as kind of a an indicating characteristic of, of your workplace culture. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So since you mentioned uh, recruiting, let's maybe I'll use that as a, as, a, as a pivot here. And can you talk a little about, you know, who else does research? Who's on the team that you manage? We are in the process of um, backfilling. We had someone on the team for like three years. And so we're looking to replace him now. And 
there was a period when um, Michelle, who's my counterpart, was on the team and she shifted to be her own team. So yeah, as far as the people that report to me, it's me plus a researcher. We have a coordinator that we're also hiring and that's somebody that's going to do recruiting and work on another area of the company. And that person's going to report to our VP of user experience. And then the other people doing research are in other organizations. So like our brand strategist on marketing is doing a lot of brand research and marketing kind of, you know, ad studies and stuff like that. Um, so the other people are the ones that we coordinate with. Okay. So uh, what do you look for then when you, when you talk to people who, I mean, I'm thinking about maybe the, the, the backfill example that you mentioned. So you're looking to bring someone in in, in that role. What do you look at when you talk to candidates? Yeah. I'm looking for somebody who, because we're, I call it the small but mighty team, (laughs) you know, I'm looking for somebody that can really take the lead and a fairly like, you know, I mean, the title is senior user experience researcher. So we need somebody who can move forward, who can work really comfortably with teams. We need somebody that plays nice with others and also has enough attention to kind of all the logistical details that you have to pay attention to, to be his or her own project manager in terms of making things happen. And we need somebody who can wear a number of hats. So field research, usability studies, some light survey stuff, some attention to quant, although you don't need to be able to do, you know, big analyses. So we, it, because we're a pretty compact team, we need somebody who can kind of do a lot of things, but really focus mostly on qual and being able to lead a project. I was speaking to somebody today at lunch and they said, they made one of those declarations that they acknowledged they couldn't back up, but it was an interesting hypothesis. And they said, uh, I think you can get away with being a crappy researcher uh, longer than you can get away with being a crappy designer. And it, it led me to think, you know, in, in the situation we're talking about, how does one assess you know, you meet a candidate and you're thinking about not only all these hats, but, you know, this, this field research piece is important. How do you assess somebody uh, in terms of that? I ask them to tell me very specific examples or stories about experiences in the field and how that's led to specific products that have been implemented. So I'm looking for some kind of like, how do they tell the story? You know, like someone told a story that was really compelling the other day um, in an interview. And it helped me see, you know, it helped put me in the room with him and the participant. It helped me see a level of empathy, but it also helped me see how he turned that into the product that he described that they made as a result of that experience. I mean, I'm giving you one example from one, mm-hmm. you know, visit, but like I'm, I'm looking for the, first of all, the ability to tell the story because that's a big piece of it. You know, I've seen a couple of resumes lately where I, I, it's like, I, I know this person's got some skills here, but the way that it's being conveyed, it's not quite like, I'm not engaged, you know? So we have to be able to advocate for the stories we're hearing in the field. And, and actually, I think I was talking mostly about shoppers, but we're also doing research with car dealers. You know, So it's B2B and B2C. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And you need to be able to tell their stories and represent them. And also, you know, roll that up into insights and be able to take action. So I'm kind of looking for how they articulate how they do that. And, you know, in some cases, it seems like, and now I'm not there with them. What's the the quality of their listening skills? I don't really know, you know. So I don't know if that's what your friend meant by you can be a crappy researcher for a longer time. But in terms of like the process, I'm looking for a way that are they, they can articulate the process in a way that it's clear that they understand it. And I've been asking people this question, you know, tell me how you deal with feedback that you get like in a 360 or something. Like, you know, we all get this positive feedback and then we get occasionally something that we need to work on. And what I'm finding is that, you know, everybody says, I always want to work on it, but the way they answer their sort of talk about a little bit more. It tells me something about, you know, the character of the person. So it, it reminds me a little of your point about, uh, when we realize that not every family is like the one that we grow up with. I mean, there's just feels like those realizations about how you've defined the world around yourself continue to happen. And I think to me, feedback is something like that, you know, that you reach a point of expertise and confidence and there's something that you didn't know that you didn't know about doing that. And those feedback opportunities are tremendous, but also terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it's, you know, there's things that we need to improve, but sometimes that feedback is, is no matter how compassionately it's done, it still kind of pulls the rug out from under you because you realize, if, I think if you hear it well, it can be really like, oh my goodness, I the world is, I understand the world differently now and I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Your, your, your story reminds me of uh, 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 trying to talk to someone, uh, getting some, getting stories from people about their field work. And uh, I had somebody that, 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 that dug themselves a whole, they were on a bad project and that was the story they had chosen to tell me. And every follow-up question I asked them like I think they were doing a good job, but they were basically hamstrung in a subcontracting gig that was like wrong and shouldn't have been sold, and you know. But they couldn't. It was just sort of uh, to your point about the power we, our ability to tell a story, says something about us as researchers and, and about as collaborators. And I could see the person just sort of following the story's trail, and it was just taking them down, 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 and I. I tried to say, well, what's another, like try to lift them all the way out of it. What's another story you could talk about another project where things didn't happen this way and you were given the resources to do your thing. And the poor person just could never, could never get out of it. And, you know, I guess that's a good thing for me to have experienced in the interview because ultimately I didn't end up working with them because hmm. you don't want to see that happen. You know, you don't want that to happen in front of one of your colleagues mm-hmm. or your boss or your client or, or anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to something that you said as you were describing this this point of evolution, which I think is really remarkable, because it's you talked about how this integrated team is uh, presented with a business question, and then you know comes together to figure out that. Do you think that that this integrated team? I don't know what to call it, but you know, all y'all who are kind of doing this 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 design thinking, basically to to you know to to be innovative. Is there a role for that in in that group, in that team to be identifying other business questions? Yeah. 
I mean, I with I just had this with somebody, this conversation, not literally in that way, but just that we want to be open to, you know, you do research and you end up with more questions as well as insights, right? So we want to be open at the end of this quarter to be able to say, here's what we learned and what we want to study as a result because we think it could have an impact on the business um, and have that feed into the conversation about what the next quarter's business question is going to be. That's nice. You answered that much better than I asked it. (laughs) I knew there was a reason I would talk to you. So then maybe that there's a, there's a bigger question that I've been thinking about. And I I guess this is not speaking to you about uh, Edmunds.com specifically, but you know, Edmunds and the other places that you've worked and kind of how you've seen, you know, the industry evolve, you know, what's sort of the, um, maybe it's the platonic ideal, but what do you think research does for a company? What is its benefits? It's so variable from one place to another, right? I want to think, and I, I am going to go to the platonic ideal, if you want to call it that. I, I, what I want to think is that what research does is both create some way of thinking about the people that use our, in this case, website, service, app, whatever, as humans, <laughs> you know, as people that are trying to solve a real person problem. So in terms of like giving us empathy for the people that are our customers, and again, I mean like shoppers or car shoppers or dealers, car dealers, I hope it does that. And I hope it also expands the business, you know, and gives us some sense of pain points that can be business opportunities that these people are experiencing. And and making that connection. Making that connection. So it's not just, you know... So people aren't just, you know, statistics and the business isn't just operating based purely on intuition without people data, you know, because we, I mean, the fact that there's a big emphasis on ethnography now, and I, this probably answers the question that you asked me earlier that I, I wasn't really coming up with an answer at that point. It's like, this is a very quantitative company and it's been like, they've been looking at big numbers for a long time. I mean, Edmunds is a website that has 18 million visitors a month, you know, so they're used to big numbers. And I I think, you know, what research does for us right now in focusing on field work is to make it really human through very specific stories that can balance the numbers. So I feel like, you know, yeah, both creating empathy and, and giving a human experience to the people on the other end of whatever we're offering and also to in, impact the business in a positive way. You know, part of what you're describing the benefit of research as is that it it humanizes people. It, it, yeah. It, it, it takes them from data to being, you know, real people that we can empathize with. And I just, like, why is that important to a business? I think it's important to a business because we're not just putting something out there. It's not, you know, if we build it, they will come. It's like, we need to create something that somebody wants, you know, whether we're in, you know, a completely generative mode and we're like, this thing doesn't exist and we're trying to figure out it does, but it fits a need somewhere along the way. I just, there's no reason to create something unless it's going to 
fit a need because we want people to engage with it. So to me, that's like, unless you understand the story, you know, what's going on in that person's house? How does this iPhone app fit into their lives? Where are they using it? What are they trying to do there? What are they trying to do on the website? Whatever. Yeah, I just feel like you have like a very shallow picture of what's possible. And I think also, you know, we can get a lot of the what through the numbers, but we don't know why, right? So we know what people are doing. We can tell you who's clicking where, but why are they doing that? And that's kind of the, that's the transition that we've made in the last few months with like very specifically, okay, here are the people on the site that are the most value to us. They're the ones that are making us the most money. Let's go to their living rooms and study them. You know, let's find out why they're doing these behaviors that we like because they're good for the business. Why? What can we do? What value are they getting? And what can we offer them that maybe we haven't thought of? So I don't, I don't know that you can know that if you're just looking at the numbers. That's great. That's a great way of explaining it. Maybe I'll switch uh, topics a little bit again and, um, you know, talk about or ask you to talk about you and, and, you know, what is it in your, you, you gave us this one formative story, I think, or a story that may be formative for you with this, this uh, Air Force project. I'm wondering, you know, if you look back your own trajectory and, you know, what's, what's core to you as a person, what is it that makes you great at what you do now? I think what makes me engaged in this is that I feel like I'm, you know, I'm kind of a do-gooder and I want to feel like I'm creating a really fun and engaging experience for people with technology. I mean, I love technology. I guess that's part of it too. And which sounds kind of odd because we all use it every day, but you know, I, you know, there was no internet when I was a little kid. I mean, you know, I talked to my 15 year old nephew and he doesn't, (laughs) he's like, what do you mean there was no internet? So I don't know. I'm still kind of intrigued by the gadgets and stuff. I think it's really cool. And otherwise I'd, you know, maybe I'd be doing something else. I mean, that's where, cause I, I, I left the field for a while. I thought I wanted to go to graduate school and get a degree in anthropology and become an academic and then ended up coming back into it because I realized I like technology and I, I think it, it should be fun and, and useful for people. And I want to be a part of that. And I, and I like that you frame that as being a do-gooder because I think that's, I just feel like socially we have a very immature and un, un-nuanced view of that word that, you know, a do-gooder picks up trash or rescues kittens or, you know, <laughs> p- pays for babies in Africa to have fresh milk or something. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of obvious, and those are all uh, important things that, you know, need to happen, but. I've think, probably done all of those. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's good. You're, you're, you're gooder than I. Um, <laughs> there are many, many, many opportunities to do good and to think about our work as something, uh, you know, to approach one's work to say that, you know, I'm going to do good at this and I'm going to improve things and, and, you know, enable other people to have uh, something better in their lives. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're getting rid of fracking or something. It doesn't have to be you know, the thing that keeps us all awake about the worst things in the world, that there's lots of, lots of ways to, to shape the world around you that can, that fall under the category of doing good. Mm -hmm. 
I think it took me a while to get to that. But yeah, I agree. I think I had that pretty narrow view of it, even though I consider myself to be that type. But yeah. Yeah, that's good. That sounds like a little bit of a little bit of self-actualization to be able to say that, you know, hey, what I'm doing is is putting good back out into the world mm-hmm. in some way. Someone asked me, I don't know, it was about a year ago, they asked me sort of about my service. They sort of said, like, what what's your what what do you do? And, you know, I had to think about that because, you know, there's a where I live, there's a thing where you can go and pick up clean up the beach. There is like a thing where you can go pick up trash and like trail cleanup day. And I never do those things. And, you know, the question on my answer on the face of the question was like, well, nothing because I don't, you know, volunteer out of this or do that. But I started to think about other things that I do. And, um, you know, I think it's sometimes we have to kind of search for that. That's Mm -hmm. me personally. But I, I would suspect that, you know, in our field, people are drawn to it because that's a thing that, that has meaning to them, that they are improving things. You know, it's funny, there's, this is going to sound kind of, you know, these personality systems, like there's the Myers-Briggs and there's one called DISC and there's one called the Enneagram that the the type that I am is called the reformer. <laughs> and when you read like, who is that type? It's all people trying to do, it, it, it draws, this work draws a certain personality type for sure. So, The yeah. reformer, yeah. 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 Can I ask you about uh, your war story that you wrote for our series? Yes. Because <laughs> I think we, we need to link to it as part of this, and it seems like I should at least mention it. Sure. Well, here's the question. I guess uh, someone's listening to this, and what what would you say to them to get them to go read your war story, which is linked <laughs> linked right here? <laughs> oh, what's the most compelling thing of the piece of this? Um, so... Yeah, in the spirit of what we were talking about earlier, like, you know, running an interview and taking somebody who's not an interviewer with you, I was taking with me the guy who's the VP of editorial. So he's responsible for all these people that, like, write these really awesome articles on the site about cars and review them and whatever. And he hadn't been out in the field like this before, and we went... And and he said, well, I'll drive and I'll take one of the cars from the editorial fleet. So we meet, we go downstairs and we've got this like (laughs) $100,000 red convertible BMW or something. And we're driving to this really terrible neighborhood of the section of Hollywood that's like really not so great. And yeah, we get to this guy's apartment and it's really dingy. And it was quite an enlightening experience for Scott, my research partner. (laughs) Yeah, it was kind of a fun story. Good and and there's there'll be a link to that for people to go and and read more and um, <laughs> this is totally me sucking up or, or setting you up to say what I want you to but that's hey I'm the host so I get to do that <laughs> what um what do you think the war stories project brings to to our field or to people that are learning about it reality hmm it's a total reality check and and I mean they're fun some of them are not funny. Ours is kind of, you know, some of them are quite, you really become quite pensive, you know, um, with them. But yeah, I think it's reality. I mean, it gives somebody a flavor for what really happens and the the kind of all the other stuff that happens. It has absolutely nothing to do with exactly what you're trying to capture, but that's the person, you know, that's the whole 
picture. It's kind of what I was saying earlier about making people human for your colleagues, you know, to get the the stories. It's it's yeah, sure it's about how they bought the car and how they got the price and what they thought of the dealer and all that stuff, but it's like what's this guy's living room like and he and his wife live in this tiny apartment with this baby and he's like like 45 years old and she looks like Giselle. <laughs> you know, and you're trying to figure out the backstory and it's kind of it, it's the reality of the the real human experience mm. that goes with the you know the business question and the product that you're trying to develop and all of those things that are important yeah you wouldn't you can't make this up we interviewed somebody for this coordinator role who's a comedy writer and i said if you work here you're going to have more material mm. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's interesting those stories kind of taken in the aggregate and you they all of them have abstracted away any actual research content, but they sort of have distilled that element of of the humanness of field research. Mm-hmm. What didn't we talk about yet that we should talk about? You know, this is nothing to do specifically with Edmonds, but I think you know you were you were talking about like the evolution of the field last week. It was announced that fifteen community colleges in California are going to be able to offer BAs for the first time. And because, you know, they offer AA degrees, but not BAs. And the BAs were chosen based on uh, the ability to train people in a field that's important and relevant in in the neighborhood of the college. And Santa Monica College was just awarded their first BA in interaction design. Wow. And yeah, Wow. It's kind of crazy, crazy good, you know, and really points to, you know, I mean, we're in quote unquote Silicon Beach and more and more companies are are bringing their themselves to L.A. But, yeah, it really it was like a pretty big move for the field. And I, I glanced, I didn't read in detail all the other schools and what they're doing, but a lot of them are like, you know, really dental hygiene. Like you need that, you know, you need people to do that. But yeah, SMC got a program in interaction design. So that's pretty pretty awesome and a pretty good sign of the times, I think. Do they need instructors? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> we will find out. Yeah. Since you mentioned you like to teach, so. Some, some of us have teaching experience, and yeah. that would be a cool, yeah. Well, that, we're putting it out there now, so. <laughs> we're putting it out there. One can do that and do this job. Yeah. Do you have any questions for me? So how's it going? How are you feeling about your new series? This is fun. Yeah, it's, well, you're someone I'm able to talk to after the after the series exists because the first few interviews were ones where that I conducted before it was posted. So it's kind of so. There we were talking about the series in the abstract, and now as I'm talking to people, well, they they've heard it. Yeah, I'm I'm enjoying it. I mean, I've been getting good feedback from people, and someone said something really nice to me the other day. They said, uh, "I wish you'd been doing this for five years so that I could have all those to kind of go back and and learn from," hmm. which is sweet, but also sort of an exhausting thought. Because um, <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't know that I would continue to do it for five years. I mean, it's this project seems to make a lot of sense now. These are conversations that aren't being had. We don't, we don't get to hear a lot. We hear a lot about design and about user experience and about design thinking. We don't hear a lot about 
research and kind of how it walks and talks in the in the corporate environments. And for me, it's exciting because you know what's changed over the last few years is that there are many, if not most, of the leaders in our field are in roles like yours. And I think there was a time when those people were in roles like mine. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, you and your ilk if I can use that word, uh, you know, you guys are doing amazing stuff. So I'm loving getting to hear these stories and and hear from people. And, uh, you know, it's one of these things where we'll just, we'll just see where it goes and what value it has for people. Someone said to me that, uh, they thought these would be interesting to people besides researchers. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm getting a little bit of that, like other people listening to them. So Mm -hmm. it's possible that, you know, you, you gave this lovely articulation of what research can bring, and that's, yeah, I'd, I think we would like more people to hear that. So if this draws a broader audience than just us kind of insider baseball stuff, then I think that's, uh, that's good for everyone. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think it's, it's evolving, right? I mean, it's brand new. And I think that's kind of a theme for the whole, to me, it seems like maybe a theme for the whole series because I've listened to a couple, of, there are only a couple are out at this moment, you know, so I've listened to a couple of them and the theme seems to be it is evolving. Our understanding of the process and how we need to be and how we need to engage with the rest of the organization is evolving. And yeah, it seems like nobody's really got a set in stone process, at least of the people that I've heard you speak with so far. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. But I think the evolution is tremendous based on sort of where we all started. And yeah, um, yeah. This is the this is like so much recursion. We're now in an episode of a podcast talking about the podcasts. <laughs> I thought only Howard Stern could kind of do that. That, but oh, geez, yeah, yeah. no profanity here, though. No. <laughs> yeah, I think we have a cl- we have a clean rating in the iTunes store. We don't <laughs> yeah, want to lose clean, that. No beeping. No yeah. beeping. <laughs> All right. Anything else, or is that uh, does that take us to to where we want to get to? I, uh, unless you have any other questions. I no, think I'm, I'm really happy. I, I love this conversation. So thanks for taking the time and for, uh, for sharing all these stories and giving us a lot to think about. Yeah. Thank you. And thanks for doing this. This is really, it's really great to be a part of it. I appreciate it. Very good. All right. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to this episode of dollars to donuts. And thank you to everyone that helped me put this together. You can get links about this episode, listen to other episodes, subscribe to the podcast, and read the transcripts at portugal.com slash series slash dollars to donuts. And you can buy my book, Interviewing Users, from Amazon or from Rosenfeld Media. Get in touch with me at portugal.com to start exploring how we can work together.